As we're going through the Gospel of John, we find ourselves in a familiar passage. Jesus is going to use this illustration of agriculture to drive home. He's going to use this earthly example to teach a heavenly spiritual truth. And the main takeaway that you could get from this is that we're branches, we're plugged into Jesus, who is the vine, he's the life source, he has the roots. His roots go deep. He's drawing up all the nutrients, all that's going up through, uh, you know, the, the, the stalk. Then all of that sap and nutrition goes out to the branches. And then all we do as we're plugged into the source is we hang out. The Bible says we abide in Christ and then we bear fruit. We don't produce fruit. We're bearing fruit. This isn't fruit production as though you're manufacturing it or I'm manufacturing this and we're doing it for God. This is a byproduct of living in God. And so as we abide in Christ and Christ in us, this exchange, this supernatural exchange comes forth this life-giving fruit. And so if you'll look with me in John chapter 15, starting in verse number one, The Bible says, Jesus speaking, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman, or the the vineyard tender, uh, the gardener, so to speak, but he's the head honcho over the whole thing. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, cuts it back, prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. I guess that's what women do with their haircuts, right? At least that was what I was told. Well, I need to get my haircut because so, my split ends and then my hair will grow more. So you cut it back to grow more. And Joe and I, DeKent and Carrie and I, we just don't have this dilemma. But he says that it may, he, he cuts it back, purges it, prunes it, so it may bring, bring forth more fruit. Now he mentions the idea here in verse 3. Now you are clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abides in the vine. No more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If a man or woman abides not in me, they are cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would guide us through your inspired word. We know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruction, and righteousness, that everyone may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works and to bear fruit. And so I pray this in your name, that you would speak to your people who are gathered. They've taken time out, Lord, because... It's an outward display of an inward faith that we believe that you rose from the dead. We believe that you're the king. We believe that you're coming again. And we're showing outwardly to our neighbors, to our kids, to our grandkids, this is real. You're real to us. And though we walk by faith, Lord, we do this. We do this demonstration of faith because of what you've done for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So Jesus is the true vine, the only source for life and of life. Jesus is the true provider of organic, non-GMO, no preservatives, no additives. It's not a hybrid. It's not a, uh, what do they call it, genetically modified uh, fruit. Jesus is, he's better than Whole Foods. He's better than Sprouts. You know, <laughs> he's, he is the non-organic or the, He is the organic, 100% pure. When we're talking about Jesus fruit, we're talking about no pesticides, no no intermingling with any sort of chemicals or inventions of men. It is 100% Jesus with no additives or preservatives. He is the true vine. And the father is the vine dresser. He's the one that knows exactly when to cut it back. He knows exactly how to plant it. He knows exactly how to prop up the branches. He knows how to support it. He knows how to to run a vineyard so that fruit could be the result. 
Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every one that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bring forth more fruit. Well, the question is, well, who left first? It was not Jesus who initiated the removal. It was the branch that willingly chose to live apart from the vine. This is faithlessness. The branch that wants nothing to do with Christ has removed themselves, so Jesus basically just gives them what they already wanted. And that's the way God operates. If you don't want him, then that's fine. He's not forcing you to abide. If you don't want to, if you don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, you don't have to. Verse 3, he says, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. This clean implies salvation in that the disciples who trusted Christ were cleansed by the washing of the water of the word and by the blood of Christ. Judas of the 12 disciples, so Jesus is saying this to the disciples. He says, you guys are clean by the word which I've spoken to you. You guys have been purified, you're saved, you're justified. He's saying that to the disciples. But Judas was not clean in that Judas willingly did not want to abide in the true vine. And Judas removed himself. Jesus didn't remove Judas. Judas removed himself. So in John chapter 13, you're kind of in that same zip code. In verse 11, it'll be on the screen probably. For he who, for Jesus knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So he knew. He says to the disciples, you guys are clean. You're going to be real branches in the true vine, but not all of you are clean because he knew that Judas did not want to abide. In fact, he removed himself. He removed himself and said, hey, you guys, um, I know you're having fellowship. I know you're hanging out and everything. I'm just going to take the money, um, you know, and I'm just going to do, skidididu, bop, bop, bop. I don't know if he scattered or not, but uh, <laughs> not scattered. That's what deer do. I was trying to think of a jazz term. Um, there we go. There we go. So he went off and for 30 pieces of silver sold out Jesus and the disciples. Yeah, that's not abiding in the vine. Unprofitable. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it remains in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. You see this kind of construct that he's developing here. It's abiding in Christ. He's using agriculture as an earthly example of a heavenly truth. You, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, he says, he that's joined unto the Lord is one spirit with him. And so there's no separating us. Nothing can separate us. Angels, principalities, life nor death from the love of Christ who is in us. Um, so he says, abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot do this by independent living or by good intentions or by fruit manufacturing. Independence can only lead to fruit production, whereas dependence will lead to fruit bearing. There's a big difference. The flesh can imitate, but faith will participate in this holistic process of bringing fruit to life and thus giving life uh, to those around it. So this fruit bearing concept is basically Galatians 2.20. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. We participate in that we have faith that Christ will do it in and through us. We're not doing it for Jesus. We're doing it from abiding in Jesus. That's how the fruit comes to pass. So we cannot manufacture the fruit of the Spirit. And that is why Jesus says, you will know imposters, you will know the fakes, you will know the phonies. You'll know them by their fruit. The works can be imitated. When we were in Utah, the Mormons do a lot of good works. They actually do a lot more works than Christians, to be honest with you. They do more evangelism. They do, they do more of a lot of things. They, they do more giving. Uh, they do a lot. They do a lot of charity. They do a lot. And so you might look at them based on their works and say, obviously a Christian, Look at all that they do. But Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. Because there's something about the fruit of the Spirit that can't be, it can't be imitated. You can't manufacture 
the fruit that's exclusive only to the source found in the true vine. You can't, it's like wine, you know, champagne, yeah. <laughs> is only exclusive to the region of France and champagne. So it's, you're not champagne if you're made in, you know, in Mississippi. Gross. <laughs> um, I don't drink champagne, by the way, but I'm just saying as an example, um, I'm not opposed to it, but I don't. I'm not a connoisseur, but champagne is, you, you can't imitate it. I, all I'm trying to get at is you can't imitate the fruit of the Spirit. It has to be that exclusive vineyard and fruit from the life that's, that's um, given through the life of Christ. In me, through me. Thank you, Brother Sean. Verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. But the odd thing is, is that without Jesus, we do a lot of things. If you think about it, those are the things done in the name of God, for God, without God, that, that the Bible would call wood hand stubble, that burns up, right? But the things done from God, those are the things, the gold, precious stones, those are the things that are eternal. They go through fire. They, tan they, uh, they stand the test of time because these are eternal things that I didn't do for God, that God did through us by faith, by us just faithfully abiding in the source. And then he brings forth the things that last. So even though mankind can do some things and most things and a lot of things on our own, Jesus said when it comes to fruit, because he is the true vine and the genesis of the fruit and life that, that's eternal, all things done for him, yet, yet outside of him, are still considered nothing, Jesus says. Think about like all the religious edifices and all the things done in the name of God over the years throughout church history. Jesus said, if you've done that for him without him, it's nothing. That's kind of sobering if you think about it. I think that's where God says, you know, you repent of dead works. And it's, it's hard to get a religious person to repent of dead works because they're so proud of all the things that they've done for God. To, to say to, I remember this dilemma in Utah, like everything that you've done up until this point for your God is dead works. It's, it's nothing. You need to repent of that. And they're thinking like, I, didn't, I didn't, haven't had sex with my girlfriend. I haven't drank coffee. Uh, I do this on you know, our Sabbath. I did two years of a mission and learned a foreign language. You mean to tell me I need to repent of all these things because it's not done from Jesus? It's exactly what God's saying. It's dead works. It's wood, hay, and stubble. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, the Bible says, he or she is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they are gathered and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Grapevine branches that are dried up and withered are really not good. They're not good for anything. They're not a good source for anything. They can't be repurposed, so to speak. They can't be used in woodworking. They're not a good source for fuel as like oak or cedar or pine or uh, you know, those manzanita was the best when we lived in Central California. That was like rocket fuel. You could melt stoves with manzanita. That stuff was so hard and hot. It burned hot. Different woods burn different. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but grape branches? Not, you're not going to, like, let's heat the house with grape. N not going to happen. I remember, <laughs> Jen will laugh at me with this. Remember when in Aubrey, this is up in the Sierra Mountains where Jen and I met, um, I, we went to Shaver Lake and they had all this furniture that was made out of wood. And I thought, easy, I'm a woodworker. So I went back home on the Indian reservation and I went into the woods and I was like finding all this, all these like thin branches. Um, and I'm like, this one's so symmetrical and long, that's cool. So I'm, I'm like hauling it all out, I'm making a, and then I'm cutting up my pieces because I made a table, I made a chair, you'd like this uh, mic. I made all this stuff, and um, I'm kind of like this a little bit, and the neighbor kid comes over, and he's like, what did you do? I'm like, dude, I, I saw this furniture, they're charged like 300 bucks for it up in Shaver Lake. I just made this stuff myself. 
He's like, what'd you make that out of? I'm like, I don't know. It was a, and he's like, oh, he's highly allergic to poison oak. And um, so he jumped out. He jumped out. And even just by him in the proximity, he had to go do the whole bath thing where you, he got it bad. I got it so bad. Remember, I had to, my chest was just all gnarly. Uh, so lesson learned, grape vine branches are not good for anything, nor is poison oak vines as symmetrical as it. It just was so awesome. I'm like, they're so long and perfectly shaped. <laughs> Anyways, so these, these branches aren't good. The only thing that they're good for is for bearing fruit. That's their exclusive purpose. But this is not a picture of a Christian who becomes dead, dried up, unfruitful, then is cast into the fire of hell. It's basically an agricultural example that people would have understood in the context of a branch that's good for nothing. So the audience of 2,000 years ago would have known this. Now, Ezekiel, actually, there's a lot of examples in the Bible that would lean on this this agricultural example of uh, vineyards and stuff like that. I think it's fascinating that when the Israelites go to spy out the land, um, remember when they're wandering in the wilderness and they come back and they say there's giants in the land. Here's something interesting. They're carrying the grapes. They have to use a staff. They're hanging it. The grapes of Esco, E-S-C-H-R-O-L. I think that's what it is. It's so big, I'm picturing it bowing as they're walking. The grapes are so ginormous. Huge, huge grapes. Hid, huge. But the grapes are so, we just watched so I married an ex-murder the other day. But the grapes are so big that the Israelites are coming back and they're carrying these ginormous grapes. You know what I think is going on? There's giants in the land. And they said, we can't go, there's giants. By the way, there's giant grapes. I think they were already doing genetic modification. I do. I think they were trying to figure, they were already tampering with the genetics uh, ahead of time. And God, why do you think God, right in the beginning, in the law, in Leviticus, he says, don't do this, don't, don't mess. It has to be a seed after its own kind. And they were figuring out how to modify things. That's not the grapes we're talking about. Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 15, uses this example. He said, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest is wood taken from it to make anything? Do you take anything? Do you, is, it, is there anything good that could come from this, these branches? Do people... Uh, take a peg from it and hang a vessel on it? In other words, can you repurpose it for furniture? Even the smallest thing as just a peg in the wall you could hang stuff on. It's like they don't even, they're not even good for that. Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel, not like to heat your house, but just like it'll take up space if it's just dry and hanging out. It, just burn it and get rid of it. When the fire has consumed both ends of it, he said, and the middle is charred, so... You ever burn something and just the middle is left? Have you ever been camping and you have to put your fire out? Is it useful for anything? He's asking rhetorically. The answer is no. Behold, when it is whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it's charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord. Why did God send prophets to the nation of Israel? Because they were obedient and doing good and they just wanted to like check in and no. He gave and remember Jesus said, You've killed all the prophets, and you'll probably try to do that to me. Remember, Jesus had that communication with them. And God would send prophet after prophet 
not to give them a, like a, you know, a participation <laughs> ribbon or trophy, but to pronounce judgment. But it was first a warning, like if you don't repent, God will discipline you. And the ultimate discipline that God would do to the nation of Israel is he'd pluck them off the land. And now he's using the example from a, from a vineyard. From a vineyard. And he said, this will happen. Why, why, what was happening with Israel cyclically, often, that God would have to send a prophet and, and someone to warn them because they turned their eyes from the one true God, the true vine, and they would turn it to false gods and false vines. They would do that all the time. They would turn to demons, to a lesser Elohim, an, an, an alternative God, something less than Jesus, less than God. And they would oftentimes do that, and they would settle for some uh, genetically modified version of the real thing, and they would turn to artificial coloring and artificial flavoring and additives and preservatives, and they would miss the real thing. And so God would send a prophet in love to warn them, and they're like, we don't, we don't want anything to do with you. So that was what was the picture of Israel. And it was their faithlessness. They did not have faith in the true vine and the true God, and so they turned to another. So here's the good news, though. I think this is the verse, Adam. But if they would have had faith, the Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 11, verse 23. Go to the next slide. Yeah. Romans eleven twenty three says this. And they also unbelieving Israel, if they abide not still in unbelief, they shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So the audience to whom Jesus was addressing would have no doubt knew about this parallel passage in Ezekiel. Uh, they wouldn't know this one in Romans because the, the New Testament wasn't written when Jesus was giving this example, but they would have known about the one in Ezekiel 15, and there's others too. There's Isaiah 5, there's Ezekiel uh, 17, uh, there's a mention in Jeremiah, but the one that most parallels is Ezekiel 15. So the Christian who is connected to the true vine, however, the true vine of Christ, uh, he may cut us back and prune us for our own good and for more fruit, but he'll never uh, cut us off and cast us off or throw us into the lake of fire, because once you're saved, you're always saved. So the teaching for the Christian who is in the true vine is that you are in. For Israel, and remember, consider the audience that Jesus was speaking to, they didn't have belief. They didn't even believe in the Messiah. They didn't, you know, they just had the, the decorative uh, appearance of it, but they weren't connected as we are. And look, when you hear the pruning shears being sharpened, no one likes to be cut back, right? But God, just know that God, and I'll deal with this later in uh, Hebrews, um, but God does this in love. He does it for our good so that we can bear fruit, and it gives us life and, and life to those around us. But what I want to talk about is this principle in verse 4 and verse 5. So this next principle here, abide in Christ. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. The Greek word there is meno, it occurs, and it has different ways that meno is translated, um, and it occurs 118 times uh, in the Greek. But it basically means this, to remain as one, to be still, to remain as one and to be still. And though we're already one with God, we are to remain and abide in our oneness with him. We are called to an abiding life, not a striving life. And I think the hardest thing for a Christian to do is to be still. I, I remember I had a professor um, in grad school. She was a go-getter, African-American. She's a leader in her church. She started a, like a, a, therap a therapy clinician or a clinic. Uh, she had her PhD. She was teaching as a professor. She had so many irons in the fire. And she was roller skating and jacked her knee up. And um, she couldn't come and teach. And I remember hearing from her, she said, the hardest thing for me was to just be still. She had to by an injury. Now, I'm not saying God does that to people, like he's going to send 
you know, Vinny the, the angel and take your knees out. And, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying that. But when knee injuries happen or when back injuries happen, Jennifer, didn't you say you're, you were a product of your mom's knee injury? I mean, she was, was <laughs> her, her mom was down for the count and, and you know, Bob's like, hey, what else are we going to do? We're just, uh, let's make Jennifer. <laughs> so, um, I just think, you know, being still is one of the hardest things for us to do. It really is. It really, really is. I think faith, stillness, to, to like from Sunday school to set our affection on the things above, yeah, for a second, and then I'm back to doing other things, right? I, I just think it's so hard for us. What's that phrase, you know, you're too uh, earthly, you're too heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good? Well, what if we're so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good type of thing? Like, do we set our, I don't know. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty or anything, but I just think stillness is a hard thing to implement and to practice. A friend of mine, I just had a conversation with the other day, is really having a hard time in his life. He's single, newly single. He just sold his business for quite a bit of money, actually. Um, He has all this loads of money. And um, his background, too, is his dad's a pastor. Um, And so he grew up in the ministry around church. But he hasn't been in church for a long time. He's just bitter towards God, towards church, towards Christians. And he likes distractions and he likes busyness. And he's telling me, you know, I don't have my business anymore. He's a young guy too. He's not really, he doesn't want to retire, but he's kind of like, like he's having that retirement experience to where, and so he's just saying, I just don't, I can't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. So he's, he's choosing to travel and to go, go around the world and things like that. But we really had this discussion about stillness. And I said, maybe, just maybe, because he's been talking to me about the Lord lately, and I'm thinking, okay. And just like really kind of like this towards God for a long time. And now through circumstances, his affections are kind of like, he's he's like looking up, looking left, looking right, looking up. He's considering these things. And I, I ripped this quote off, and I told this to him the other day. Turn to the next slide. I think it's Experiencing God. Uh, Blackaby, have you ever read that book? It's old. It's an old book. And it's good. You know, it's not one of my favorites, but it's a really good book. And, and there's Bible studies that go along with it. It was kind of swept the church for a while. But one of his quotes is, the world says, don't just stand there, do something. The Lord implies, don't just do something, stand there. And he goes, go to the next slide, and he kind of takes this idea from this psalm. Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. So what I'm getting at is this abiding life is not a striving life. It's a still life. Branches don't struggle. They don't strive. They're not like me, 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 me. They're not selfish. They're not greedy. They're not, <laughs> they're not wolves of Wall Street. They're not go-getters. They're abiders. They're just abiding dependently on the vine. And that's a hard thing for us to do because that's a faith approach. It's a faith approach. Abiding. You know the word selah in the Old, in the Old Testament and the Psalms. It has the idea of just take a moment. Think about this. Pause. Think about this. Jenna's um, talked to me about this lately. It's kind of a lost art or practice in the church, but it's mentioned in the Bible to meditate. You know, it's like we don't relegate that to humanist, humanistic psychology to, to tell, or Eastern religions. They don't get to hijack all that. That's been in the Bible for thousands of years, meditate. How many of us even really know what that means, to meditate, to take time to pause, to think about these things, I was driving last night, it was a full moon, and I glanced over to the left, it was at a stoplight, and it was the moon. And here I am, like, you know, where we live, it's, it's just right angles, you know, and straight and right angles. And then there's like these two-story buildings everywhere and lights, and you just, just right angles and, and annoying people on their phones when the light turns gray, and you're like, oh. 
machine guns. Um, <laughs> but I just took a moment, and I remembered Psalm 8, when I consider the sun and the moon and the stars, what is man that you're mindful of him? And I just, I, it was so awesome just to see, I'm like, I'm worried about the traffic and where I'm going to go, and my wife's car was out of gas, I got to give her gas, and like that kind of stuff. And I just looked at the moon, and I'm like, huh. God's so big. God's so awesome. I love that. Just abiding. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not orchestrating the moon's gravitational impact on the earth and the tides. I'm not doing that. God is. I control the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the weather. God is. My task is to abide. And as all the seasons come onto a vineyard, uh, the branches don't really necessarily complain about the seasons. They just go through the seasons, the rainy seasons, the cold seasons, the hot seasons, the dry seasons, the wet seasons. Branches abide. The dude abides, and so do branches. I'm just kidding. Never mind. Don't watch it. So when we stop striving and start abiding, we start to start to taste and to see and to smell and to sense, and like as Maddie was saying in Sunday school, experience that the Lord is good. Even in his book, uh, Experiencing God, he's like, if we just go out and do something for God, we'll miss it. But his whole point in that book is like, if you pause and you take stillness and you take time out and you really meditate and you really set your affection on things above and you wait long enough then you'll figure out what God's doing. Then you join God in what he's doing rather than running way out there and asking God to join you in what you're doing. That's the whole book. And that's a great concept. Amen? I think it is. So, um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. It'll be on the screen. Let therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. Just abiding. If you heard from the beginning, shall remain in you. You shall continue in the Son. This is endurance and in the Father. And this is the promise that he's promised us, even eternal life. John 14, 16, Jesus, before he ascends, he's telling the disciples, he's trying to comfort them. And he says, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Abide in me and I in you. His, his deal, his end of the bargain is he will abide in us forever. Our end of the bargain is are we by faith going to abide in Jesus? You're already connected to the true vine, but are we going to by faith walk in faith and trust his life flow, his life source to bring, the for, bring, uh, bring forth the fruit? Or are we going to go out and try to manufacture it or just ignore it? Alani, Lalani, you mentioned this. And I was kind of smiling in Sunday school. But check out this next verse. I already had it on, the, on my notes. Psalm 91.1. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I don't know if that's the one you were thinking of. Yeah, amen. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That's an awesome thought. We're dwelling in Christ. Christ is in us. He's got us. We're in his hand. He said, no one will pluck you out of his hand. No one will pluck you out of his father's hand. I am my father in one, and no one's greater than him. And so we're safe and secure in the shadow and the secret place as we abide uh, in Christ. This next thought, and we'll just kind of wrap it up here, is this whole idea that we can do nothing without Jesus. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now look at this next slide. With Christ, however, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That's powerful. Look at the next slide, though. Without Christ, we can do nothing. So with Christ, all things. Without Christ, nothing. It's like this. Let me illustrate it this way. For me to live is Christ, the Bible says. And we, we mentioned that in, uh, in, no, no, that's in Philippians. Never mind. Um, but I thought it was Colossians, um, when Christ who is our life. But this is Philippians. For me to live is Christ. It's like an unborn baby saying, for me to live is mom. 
For me to live as Christ is like an unborn baby saying, for me to live as mom. And it's also like a fish saying, for me to live as water. Take a fish out of the water, he dies. Take a baby out of the mother's womb prematurely, uh, he dies. She dies. The fish dies. It's the same thing uh, for the branch. For me to live and bear fruit is the vine. And I want to illustrate this, that without Jesus we could do nothing by Romans chapter 7 and verse 4. Look at this. Wherefore, my brothers, my sisters, you have become dead to the law, dead to the old self, dead to the Mosaic system through the body of Christ, that you should be married to another because we're the bride of Christ. We were married to Moses, technically, theologically speaking. So in order to be legally married to Jesus, someone has to die. So he doesn't kill the law and he doesn't kill the the Mosaic system. He kills me from that system He crucifies me. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So he takes me out of that relationship, which was abusive, by the way. And he he buries me. He raises me up again. And then I'm able to legally and lawfully be joined to Jesus. So that we should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So again, this isn't something that I could manufacture I couldn't crucify myself. I couldn't bury myself. I couldn't raise myself to, bring to life, to bring forth fruit to, to God. That was a God thing. It's the same idea where Jesus is using this agriculture example here. In John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless the grain of wheat falls into the, the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, then it brings forth much fruit. What's the concept here? You take a seed, you open up the earth, You know, you dig down, you get to some good soil, you throw the seed in the ground, you bury the dirt, you cover it. What happens? The outer shell decays. It starts to rot. It starts to uh, like uh, meld itself uh, into the soil. And whatever miracle takes place from that death, and then something sprouts out and comes life. So what's the concept here? In order to bring fruit, you need to die. And then you need to be raised again. I can't do that. That's something that only Jesus can do to us and through us. So being born again is something that God, just as you didn't birth yourself physically, you could not birth yourself spiritually, and you cannot produce the fruit. All, the only way you could do it is by abiding in Christ. The only way I could do it is by faith, saying, not I, but Christ. So I'm going to illustrate it this way. Look at this, this picture here. Would you eat any of that? Of course, you know where I'm going with this. This is fake fruit. This is plastic fruit. Fake, phony. Looks good. Looks shiny. (laughs) Yeah, you're not going to spike your blood sugar with that. Doesn't have any good sugars. Not even the bad ones. Um, No fiber. No nutrients. Uh, There's no vitamin C, D, E. None of it. Right? It just looks like fruit. It's just fake. It's just fake fruit. And this fake fruit, no doubt, was made in China in some plastic factory. And plastic, by the way, is made from petroleum. Did you know that? It's an oil-based product. And so here's this, you've got to have this factory, and if you know anything about manufacturing, if everyone's worked in a manufacturing plant, I have. A feather factory was terrible. It was like the worst job ever in high school. It was like noisy. You had to wear ear things, eye things, masks, and it just clamor and noise. And when things broke down, and even that tactile, that tactile place that we worked at was so noisy that made the carbon fiber, and it's just like, the lights, the dirt, the, like the grease for all the parts, and just the, you know, and the people are like, you sweat, you're just like, just there, and you're just manufacturing an outcome and production, and well, there's the result. It looks really good, but it doesn't taste good, and it's good for nothing. It's good for nothing. That's what it's like to try to manufacture fruit apart from Christ. That's what he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're not going to be able to, go to the next slide. You're not going to be able to, like, this is awesome. 
We've been having a lot of uh, purple grapes lately in the house. I love it. Adam's been buying them, and then Jennifer's been buying them, and then Chloe's been eating them. <laughs> and she's like, keep them in the fridge. What are you leaving them out for? But there's Jesus, the vine. There's us as the branch. And then the Holy Spirit produces his fruit. Right? This is real. This is real. And they don't struggle. They don't strive. It's not noisy. There's not... There's not computers, there's not algorithms, there's not oil, there's not gears, there's not a maintenance crew. There's just a loving gardener that's like, you know what, let's trim this back a little bit. Uh, yeah, you'll, you'll, it'll, you'll, you'll do better next time. It'll, it'll grow, it'll grow. And so there's this loving, tender, caring approach to bearing something that lasts, that's good. It's good. It's true. It's good. Galatians chapter 5, we're almost done, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. But the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Look at Philippians 1.11. This one lends to the idea, apart from me you could do nothing also being filled with all the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. If it was all done by us, then we would get the praise and the glory. But because it's God working in and through you, he gets the credit and he gets the glory. He's the, he's the vine. He's the vine dresser. He's the whole thing. He's the rain. He's the soil. He's the support. He's the roots. He's the one that's able to draw it. He's the one that invented it anyways. He created it from nothing, and then we're just borrowing from that idea. It's all about Jesus. We get to join him. We're plugged into this Christ, Christocentric view of the universe. We're in him, and he wants to do life in and through us. And sometimes we don't do it that good. I love Jennifer when we had lunch with Bill, and he ripped you off too, by the way. He loves your quote. I forget how you said it, but you said it, and he loves it, and I loved it too. Uh, he's like, I'm just not very good at this. We're talking about Christianity. <laughs> She's like, we're just not very good at this. And he's like, I'm, I love that. We're just not very good at this. Sometimes when we're not good at this, God, as a loving vine dresser, comes to us as a loving father to his children. It says, now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but it's grievous. No one likes to you know, take a time out. No one likes that. Nowadays, no, you, you want to know the worst thing to do for a kid is take away their cell phone. For some, they're like, give me all the spankings, but don't take my cell phone. I believe in corporal punishment now. I'll never report you to the CP, the, the CCP. Um, <laughs> no chastening for the present time seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Unto them what's your exercise. That's pruning. That's pruning. God will do that. He's, there's been seasons in my life where he's done that. This last thought, I'm just going to end with kind of like an application to the concept of a vineyard and bearing fruit, but it's something that my wife and I heard, and we would listen to it often before we even got married, on cassette tapes in my old Volvo. We would... We would <laughs> Listen to these messages um, on marriage and the Song of Solomon, and I have never, ever forgot this. I don't always practice it, but I've never forgot it. And I turn to the next slide. So the Song of Solomon, love, sex, marriage, and Jesus, that's probably why I liked that book so much. I'm like, yeah, that sounds cool. It's like PG-13. <laughs> and, uh, but it's really about, it's a love story about uh, a bride and a bridegroom. Go to the next slide. In, the, in chapter 2, if you'll want to turn there, because uh, these verses aren't going to be up on the screen, if you'll turn to the Song of Solomon. So if you go to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, so it goes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So if you're, if you're there, if you want to, but I'll read it if you don't want to take the time to find it. Verse 8 of chapter 2, so it's this love story. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, 
leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. And that's exactly the kind of language my wife uses about me. <laughs> Behold, there, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, come away. For behold, the winter is past and the rain is overgone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove uh, is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs and the vines and the blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, uh, my beautiful one, and come away. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies, the nooks in the crannies of the cleft. Uh, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. And then chapter 7 and verse 12. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. And so really, the book of the Song of Solomon is really about a picture of Christ and the church, this love affair with Christ and his bride, the church. And he's using Solomon and the Shulamite woman. But in part of maintaining their relationship, as, as one would maintain a vineyard, you know, you'd cut it back, you'd prune it, you'd make sure that it's like that the branches are like uh, on those poles and so they're, they're, they're spread out the right way and they're supported the right way and all that kind of stuff. You tend to it. It's not just set it and forget it type of thing. Well, part of that maintenance is catching the foxes, the little foxes that come and spoil the vineyards. I think this is interesting. Here, go, go to the next slide. There you go. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes. The vineyards, while our vineyards are in blossom. Go to the next slide. So, leave it there for a second. If we're to keep a healthy, thriving relationship, we may need to tend to the vineyard of our own relationships and watch out for the little foxes. And this is kind of the, the practical side of this message. Okay, abide in Jesus, and he in you, Apart from him, you could do nothing. Apart from him, we are nothing. He's the source of life. If we want that peaceable fruit, not that striving life, but that abiding, abundant life that he wants to give, it comes by just being connected by faith to Jesus. He's God. He, he's got this, yo. He'll do it in and through you. As we don't get out ahead of him, and we don't say, look at me, look at me. I, I, you know, Come join me over here, Jesus. Come join me over here. We're just still, we're patient, we're waiting. We, we, we get the instruction from God, and then he join, we join him in doing what he wants to do. Well, maybe part of our stewardship responsibility is to watch out for the little foxes. What can the little foxes look like in your life? In, let's just say in your marital relationship, bitterness, disrespect, contempt, unforgiveness, lack of connection, avoidance name-calling, murmuring, complaining, mocking, rudeness, coldness, indifference, apathy, non-communicative, lack of emotional, and lack of physical intimacy. Now, as a marriage and family therapist, right, now that's my new thing, stuff I deal with now, stuff I deal with, and you could kind of see, see it coming. It's the little things. Or, you know, like death by a thousand cuts. You know, someone doesn't just go out and cheat on their husband and wife. They do it, but what led up to it? Little foxes. Little foxes. And catch the little foxes. They didn't catch the, the, the little things that just kept stacking up and, and it kept creating more and more and more distance. They didn't catch it. They didn't see it. They had this beautiful vineyard, and, the, and, they, and they just kind of just let it go unattended. So Gottman, who's kind of a, an expert in marriage, in fact, he's one of the only ones, he, the Gottman Institute in Seattle, right by the University of uh, Washington, right down there in downtown Seattle, 
Um, he has this, the Gottman Institute of Marriage. He'll, he'll bring couples, and he's studied thousands of them. They'll come there. They have to, you know, they have to sign a, a waiver of consent, but they will film them, and then they will analyze their interactions. It's very interesting. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours and hundreds and hundreds. And so they've, they've kind of reduced things down statistically about those that are successful in marriage and life and those that aren't. And I don't know if you've heard about it, but the Gottman's um, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in Marriage and, and Relationships, he has number one horseman, criticism. The next one, contempt. The third horseman, defensiveness, playing the victim card. And the fourth one, stonewalling. Go to the next slide. Here's what it looks like. Criticism. Instead, talk about the problem and how it makes you feel rather than to criticize one another. Contempt. Stop having expectations and appreciate them more. So you, you show gratitude and you have realistic expectations, not this... I'm finding, too, like in relationships, that one of the, the silent killers is this, this uh, unwritten rule of expectations. And then when someone doesn't meet it, then, then it comes back with contempt. But if you've never verbalized what you need or want or expect, then no one's a, no one's a mind reader in relationships. So contempt is a big, it's a big one. Defensiveness. Accept their feelings, even if you disagree. 100% ownership when you make mistakes. Because in, in this horseman... This is the one that plays the victim card. You know, this is where you're victimized and, well, I wouldn't have if you wouldn't have done this. And so that happens with defensiveness. And then stonewalling, just kind of, they, they have kind of scientifically, to be honest with you, kind of figured out statistically when you're, when you're here at stonewalling, this is just apathy, you just don't care. The little foxes have been eating away at the vineyard. And when you're at stonewalling, pretty much done. They could almost predict, I think, what is it, 90 percent accuracy, the divorce rate, based on the four horsemen. That's phenomenal, if you think about it. But if you've not caught the little foxes up until this point, your vineyard, you abide in Christ, you abide together, you and your, your, you know, the two become one, God in you, you together, and then there's a little, there's little attacks, there's little, you know, you go through seasons and there's little foxes nipping, nipping, nipping. All this like stuff to destroy your vineyard. If you, if you don't deal with the little foxes and you get down to stonewalling, you're just that done and you're that over it and you just don't care anymore and you're checked out, you're open to all kinds of things. So in conclusion, we're going we're gonna to do communion here in a second. Jesus is the true vine, we're the branches. He wants to bear fruit in and through your life to the degree that we participate by faith in Jesus, living his fruitful, productive life in and through us. Our responsibility is by faith to allow him to do so.